this gospel reading for this morning, my, uh, my oldest son, Josiah, who's in college now, he shared with me that this is his favorite gospel passage because it contains his favorite verse in the whole Bible. Come have breakfast. Our grocery bill went down a lot when he went off to college. So, <laughs> I like this passage too. And one of the things I really like about this particular scene in the gospel is how it shows us the humanity of the risen Jesus. Right? He doesn't come back as an apparition or a ghost. The apostles weren't having visions. He's really there in the flesh. And that's shown because even in his post-resurrection glorified state, our Lord engages in very ordinary, very physical activities like eating fish with his friends around a charcoal fire by the lake. And it strikes me too that the way that he gets Peter's attention here also seems very human. It's a very human way to do it. Because Peter and the other disciples, they're out fishing. They've been out fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And Jesus is on the shore, and they don't know that it's Jesus. And he calls to them from the shore. Well, first he asks them, have you caught anything? I think any of us who have ever been fishing understand that. If you're ever fishing and someone comes by and they see you fishing, there's some kind of an unwritten rule that you have to ask. Have you caught anything? Have you caught anything? What have you caught today? So Jesus is on the shore. Have you caught anything? What have you caught? No, they're not biting tonight. We haven't caught anything. But then he says, cast your nets one more time. And they do. And as soon as they do, the nets are miraculously filled to overflowing. 153 fish. And as soon as that happens, when that happens, that's when they recognize Jesus. Because that's exactly how Jesus first called Peter and his brother Andrew. It's the exact same scene. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They've been out fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. I wonder sometimes how good of a fisherman Peter actually was, because the two times we see him fishing, he catches nothing <laughs> until Jesus comes. So they're out all night, and they haven't caught anything. And then Jesus comes, and at his command, they lower their nets one more time, and they catch more fish than their boats can hold. You know? And so it just strikes me as a very human thing that after rising from the death, Jesus decides he wants to surprise Peter with this little reenactment of their first meeting. You know, he could have just appeared and said, Hi, <laughs> it's me. But he says, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him, right? Watch this. And I, I imagine him standing on the shore just kind of waiting with a smile on his face for that look of recognition, you know. When are they, they going to know it's me? When are they going to figure it out? Kind of like an inside joke shared between close friends, you know. But our Lord was doing something more with this, too. He was doing something more than just kind of affectionately teasing Peter, he was reminding Peter of his mission. Because that first miraculous catch of fish ended with Jesus commissioning Peter to be a fisher of men. If you remember that scene from the gospel, as soon as they haul in all the fish, Peter drops down on his knees and he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, get up. 
From now on, you will be fishing men. You will be fishing for men. He gives Peter a commission, a share in his own mission. And Peter left his boats. He left his net. The gospel says he left all that behind. And he spent the next three years following Jesus as his disciple, learning from him, witnessing everything that Jesus did. And now, after being with him for so long, after witnessing the passion, the death, and the resurrection, because this is not the first time that they saw the risen Lord, they've witnessed the resurrection They're witnesses of all these things. And what are Peter and the other apostles doing? They've gone fishing. They've gone fishing. Think about everything that they've seen. They saw the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. They saw him healing lepers. They saw him give sight back to the blind. Peter and John were there at the transfiguration. They saw him in his glory. They heard the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. They saw the veil of the temple being torn in two as our Lord hung dying on the cross. And they saw the empty tomb. Last Sunday, we read about how Jesus appeared in their midst. And he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gave them a job to do. He says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. He says, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. He gave them a mission and he gave them the divine authority, the Holy Spirit to fulfill that mission, to carry it out. And after all of this, what do these Galilean fishermen do? They're still Galilean fishermen. They go back to business as usual. They fall back into their old patterns. They acted exactly the same as they did before Christ came into their lives. They acted like Galilean fishermen. But I think we can all sympathize with them a little bit, right? Sometimes we forget our own mission as Christians. It's very easy. It's very easy after we have an encounter with Christ to go back to our usual routine and live our lives as if nothing has changed. Like Peter and the other apostles, we sometimes need a reminder of our calling, of our mission. What is our mission? What's the mission of a Christian? Do we even know? If I asked any one of you, what's your mission as a Christian? I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask as a show of hands. But if I asked you, what's your mission as a Christian? I think a lot of us would, what, what did you say, Tom? Evangelize. There you go. I think a lot of us would probably say to get to heaven, and that wouldn't be a wrong answer, right? We want to get to heaven. That's a good answer. But how do we get to heaven, and what do we do in the meantime? Tom said it, evangelize. The church teaches us this in the catechism. It says the vocation of all Christians, the common vocation of all Christians, not priests, not deacons, not religious, all Christians, is, quote, a vocation to holiness and to the mission of evangelizing the world, and that's rooted in our participation in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation and the Eucharist. Those are the sacraments of Christian initiation. In baptism, we die to our old self, we die to our former way of life, and we rise a new creation in Christ. We become members of the body of Christ. Like St. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. 
And then in confirmation, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we're empowered with the divine authority to live out our mission, our mission of holiness and our mission of evangelization, to live a holy life in the midst of this unholy world, and then to be Christ's witnesses in the world. We have the power to do that. Christ is not going to give us a mission and not give us the power to live out that mission. So we have the Holy Spirit in confirmation. And in the Eucharist, Jesus feeds us on his own body and blood to strengthen us and to nourish us for this mission. This is what's happened to all of us. Having done all of this, how can we ever be the same? but we still look the same. We still feel the same. Our old habits and our old ways of thinking don't simply go away just because we've received a sacrament or we had a meaningful encounter with the Lord on a retreat. It's very easy for us to still go back to our old ways, our familiar ways, just like the Galilean fishermen did, especially when the world around us still seems the same but you're not the same. You're not the same because you have the risen Christ living in you. I know it's hard. It's hard to be holy when we live in a world that does not value holiness, that has different values than the church, but it's always going to be that way. It always has been that way. To be a Christian is to be a little countercultural, and sometimes it's to be a lot countercultural. And I know that we hesitate to evangelize. We hesitate to evangelize, most of us, because we've been taught that religious conversations are awkward, and it's not polite to bring up these topics. And we have visions in our heads of these street preachers with megaphones yelling at people, you know, making them feel uncomfortable. Well, we don't want to be that guy, you know. But we have to evangelize, and we have to be holy, Our vocation as Christians is to to live in the light of the resurrection and to share that good news with others. And if we really believe it, how could we not? How could we not? If you really believe it, how could it not affect your life? How How could it not manifest itself in the way that you live, in the way that you relate to other people? Why would you not want to share that good news? During Mass, just a few minutes ago, right before the gospel is proclaimed, What do we all do? We make a sign of the cross on our foreheads and on our lips and over our hearts. And when we do that, we make the prayer. We say this silent prayer to ourselves. May the word of God be on my mind and on my lips and in my heart. Do we mean that? When you make that prayer, are you just doing that because that's what we do, you know? If you really mean that, That means that Jesus is on your mind and Jesus is on your lips and Jesus is in your heart. And if you're thinking about Jesus and if you're speaking about Jesus and if you're loving Jesus and you're loving who and what Jesus loves, you're evangelizing. You can't not be his witness if you're doing those things. You don't need a megaphone. (laughs) You don't need a sign on the street corner. You're doing it already. If you're thinking about Jesus and you're speaking about Jesus and you're loving Jesus 
and you're loving what Jesus loves. That's what we're supposed to do, and that's who we're supposed to be. But are we? When people see us, do they see Christ? When they hear us, do they hear Christ? Do they experience the love of God through our charity, our love? After Jesus reminded them of their mission in today's gospel, the apostles left Galilee. Once again, they left their nets behind and they returned to Jerusalem to be Christ's witness, even though it was a dangerous place for them. The book of Acts that we read from today says that they filled the city with their teaching. They raised such a ruckus that the Sanhedrin had them arrested and ordered them to stop teaching in that name. And the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. We are witnesses to these things. Remember Peter, when Jesus was arrested, Peter, who claimed to love Jesus more than any other apostle, when a servant girl asked him, do you know him? You're one of his followers, aren't you? He said, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. But now here's that same Peter. He's standing in front of the highest Jewish authorities, the whole Sanhedrin. And he says, we have to obey God rather than men. Proud of Peter in that moment, aren't you? Would we do the same? Would we rejoice to be found worthy of suffering dishonor for the sake of the Lord? If we were told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, would we? If Christianity were outlawed today, like it was outlawed for the first 300 years of Christian history, would there be enough evidence in our lives to get us convicted? Would anybody come looking for you to arrest you for being a witness to these things? Would you rejoice to be persecuted for his sake? On a good day, I would like to think that I would be willing to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. I don't know if I would rejoice. <laughs> if I'm honest, I don't know if I would rejoice. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. But do your neighbors know that you're Catholic? Do they know that you're Catholic? Do they know that they're invited here? Do they know that they're welcome here, that we want them to be here? Do they know that God loves them? Have they heard that from you? If the answer is no, don't despair. Don't worry. Even the apostles needed a reminder sometimes of their mission. But Jesus comes to us the same way that he came to his friends back then. And he reminds you. He reminds each one of us of what our job is. He reminds you, you're not the same. You're mine now. He comes to us through the sacraments. He comes to us in the scriptures. He comes to us in our prayer. And he asks you, just like he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He asked Peter that three times because Peter denied him three times. And he'll ask us as many times as he needs to. You know, there's, there's something interesting in the way that he asks Peter, do you love me? Because the first two times that he says that, the word he uses for love is agape, which is the Greek word for a total self-giving love, the kind of love that makes you willing to die for the one that you love. That's the kind of love that God has for us. 
And so he asks Peter that, do you love me? Do you agape me? But when Peter responds and says, Lord, you know that I love you, the word Peter uses in Greek is philia, which just means friendship. And friendship is good, but it's less. It's not agape. But the third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word philia too. He's come down to Peter's level. And that's why the gospel says Peter was so distressed when Jesus asked him that third time, do you love me? Because he saw his Lord condescending down to where he was. He knew that Jesus was asking for agape. And he knew in his heart he wasn't capable of that. So Jesus settles for his friendship, for his philia. Peter's not able to offer the kind of love that Jesus asks for, at least not now. But Jesus accepts the love that Peter is able to give. Jesus accepts the love that you are able to give. And so if we answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, whatever kind of love we can give to Jesus, he'll call us back to our mission, no matter how far we've strayed from it. And he'll say, be my witness. And he'll say, follow me. Because Peter ended up truly loving Jesus with agape love. He gave his life for his beloved, martyred for Rome on an upside-down cross. He was martyred upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be martyred the same way that my Lord did. Hang me upside down, and they did. He followed Jesus all the way to his own Calvary. And if we follow Jesus, wherever he leads us, even if it's to the cross, he'll transform our love as well. And then we'll truly be his witnesses because we'll be like him.